it's this really delicate balance between knowing your product from like a pure intuitive sense what the right thing to do is and then using data to support those things if you're in a growth stage company there's things happening all over the place there's lots of distractions you can get lost in your own world rising above it and putting yourself back in that customer seat is such a superpower in the early stages you might not want to hire someone dedicated to growth until you have some sort of repeatability demonstrated. The industry is not staying static in terms of like, what do you need to make these decisions and how can you grow? I always like the notion you're like a mad scientist. You're mixing in a beaker of like all your different variables. You want to keep some constraints. You want to keep some variables the same, a little bit more of this and you want to see how it reacts. Hi, this is the Hyper Growth Experience and I'm your host, Nima Gardide. I'm the co-founder and CTO of Paramill, and we help startups grow through art and technology. Most modern growth teams use a culture of experimentation as the main process to grow. There are lots of unknowns around how this process is meant to be run, what tooling to use, how often to run tests, and how to prioritize. We're excited to have Aaron Glazer, co-founder and CEO of Tapletics, and Seth Bindernagel, VP Marketing of SoloLearn and ex-senior director of growth at Strava. On this episode, we discuss their process behind helping grow plenty of incredible companies like Firefox, Twitter, Grubhub, and more. We'll cover what sorts of growth people to hire at different stages of your product, how to think about product market fit after the early stages of the company, and how to think about growth infrastructure, tech, marketing, and operations. Aaron and Seth are both fascinating to listen to. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, everyone. I'm Aaron. I'm co-founder and CEO at Tapletics. We're the number one feature management and experimentation platform out there to help you increase uh, your core metrics, whichever ones they may be. And I am Seth Bindernagel. I'm currently the VP of marketing at SoloLearn. We are an ed tech platform that teaches people how to code. We are in high growth mode. So probably facing a lot of the issues that many of you who have dialed into this call are facing. Been working in tech for the past 15 years on and off growth teams at various technology companies like Mozilla, Twitter, et cetera. Yeah. So one of the first things I wanted us to sort of tackle, and this is something I've been trying to figure out as well, since I've been mostly in the startup world and it's been hard to sort of see the, the composition of the growth teams and how they evolve and what they look like, mainly because I've always been at the ground zero sort of companies instead of being in the later stage companies, although we now deal with some of that with our clients. I'd love to get your thoughts on how do you think about the different types of people you need to hire? You know, think about it, let's say, you know, C to series A, series A to, you know, B and C, and then later on when you're a scale up, how do you think about the types of people you want to bring on? You know, I, I'll let you, you structure this yourself, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it and we can sort of dig into it afterwards. Aaron, do you want to kick it off? I mean, I, I obviously have some opinions, but why don't you, why don't you get us started? Sure. I think that. You know, I'll frame the conversation in saying that there's no there's no perfect roadmap to this, and it's different for every company, every startup, and every situation. It's and it changes constantly as your business evolves. The evolution of your business is is in some ways going to be in front of the changes in the types of people, and in, for some roles, is actually going to be behind it. But in general, I think when you think about growth, if it was easy, somebody would have uh, written it down, and everyone would be doing it. So there's this big element of number one, are you looking for people? And I think across all of the different stages, it's probably fairly universal, but looking for people with this high degree of intellectual curiosity, people who can see the world and ask questions about why is something this way to then inform what you're doing on your end. But Seth, why don't you hop into it? Like you can 
from the different stages. Talk about that. I've noticed that the earliest stages, you kind of need the people who um, have an entire portfolio of skills. And so those are people who have to be able to do analysis. Oftentimes they need to know SQL. They need to be able to write queries. They need to be able to write copy. They need to be able to comment on design. They need to be able to write user stories. They, they effectively need to be like product leads almost because they're going to be asked to do everything in those earliest stages. And this I'm typically talking about pre-seed companies, seed companies, um, those that are scaling companies that haven't really raised a lot of money because they're still establishing product market fit. And then, and, and they're starting to like dip their toe into growth. So it's a lot of times it might even be a little too early to start growth, but finding that really quality person who can do everything is really key hire. And then as you scale, you know, you're starting to raise into your like series A and series B, you're getting to a point where um, you actually are having disciplines inside the teams that are focusing on, on specific things and you can start to specialize. And I think at that specialization point, you start to like branch out. Now, in my case, I recently engaged Nima and his team because we're a series A company going into series B. We don't have a fully fledged like growth team. We're not ready to in, in-house paid marketing. It's not a core competency that we could ever do on our own right now that lines up with the scale we're trying to achieve. So Nima and his team represent like a perfect opportunity for us to outsource an entire growth team effectively. At some point, three years now, four years, who knows when it'll be, we are going to hit a scale where like Nima and his team are either not going to be able to achieve the same performance. They will have achieved what they wanted to for us, or we can't afford them anymore because we just get so big and we're going to have to internalize it. Like it happens in every stage. You get so big that you have to start making these determinations to bring people in. It's like it's for sure going to be the last one. You just won't be able to afford us anymore at some point. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's, it's happened to me on two separate occasions where our teams have grown so big that um, we started to, basically just hire internally because it was no longer cost effective or whatever it may be. And that's, that's okay. Like that's a totally acceptable thing. And so it's really, I think, depends on where you are in your company. If you are an early stage company, pre-seed or seed, and you're still thinking about product market fit, you may not want to go full head on into, in fact, we could say it. I don't think you want to go head on into like building out a whole growth team right now. Cause you don't even know if you have a product that fits what the market is demanding. That moment you get that product market fit, that first hire to me kind of feels like they have to be that Jack of all trades that can really run hot. So isn't it smart to find those people like correct me if I'm wrong. And I think Aaron, you, you struggle with this too. When you guys were starting your own growth sort of functions in house. Isn't it hard to find someone that has all these like things? Like they're usually way too expensive to be coming into a an early stage startup that only has like one or two million dollars to work with. And I, I know maybe all of us here are like that, where we we can write our own SQL queries and do design a little bit and even code a little bit and and understand marketing very well. But those types of people, and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys probably have hired more of these people than I have. They're expensive, like they're hard to find. And usually they're founders, you know, because they, if you're that this good, maybe you should go found your own company uh, and work on it. So how, what do you guys do there? Like, that's an interesting problem. Yeah, I mean, I think that you need to set the bar properly. The cost of the person is usually is not usually the limiting factor. Um, I think it's more about the availability and finding somebody in that kind of role. And I agree with you. I think a lot of the people who are doing that are probably off founding their own things because they can. That being said, if you're able to find somebody who shares some of those attributes, you know, they can tick some of those boxes and most importantly, see the other ones as an opportunity. So the fact that they don't know SQL, if they're looking at that and saying like, 
I don't know, SQL, and this is going to be amazing. I get to learn SQL. Then they'll learn SQL and they'll accomplish what you need to do, or they'll find someone else to do it. The person to look out for is the one that says, I don't know SQL and I don't know how we're going to do this because you don't know at an early stage, you're not going to know how to do anything. Like you're not going to know how to position your product in the market. You're not going to know what channels, like there's way more things you don't know how to do than you do know how to do. Taking that on head first is, is yeah, so key. And, and another one is um, a person who may say like, I don't, I don't know SQL and I'm not sure you should be hiring people that need to learn how to, to do SQL. Like, can't you just like use a tool that'll do that for you? You know, people who are like less eager, I think, and are looking for tooling solutions to solve problems. Also very strategic thing. Like, yes, you should do that. But I think you want to, like, like Aaron said, you want to tap into the people who are eager and it, it, yeah, it's like unicorn hunting. You're, you're never going to find the exact person, but Mima to answer your question. I think the other thing too, is that there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley who know they are not founders, but they know they're early stage employees and they've made a lot of money and they want to jump back into the next rocket ship. And so a lot of it is like, how well can you recruit these people? You know, how much can you sell yourself as a person, as a team member, and, and the idea that you're building to get them on board with the future promise of excitement? You know, there's a lot of that, I think, when people have made their money and they're, they're sitting on some Facebook stock and they're happy and they're maybe they're like recently married or whatever, they're looking for that next challenge and they want to jump into something that they feel is like more meaningful to them because there's a decent likelihood they've spent the past four years grinding at Facebook and learned a ton of stuff, but being like, I want to go do something that's like small and exciting and new and can get big. And I want to be in on the ground floor. So that can also be a way to recruit people where the promise for cash upfront isn't there. Maybe you, maybe you recruit them with equity or whatever it may be. I think there's a lot of that happening too in Silicon Valley or anywhere, anywhere else. And then those people start teaching the people around them. Right. So that, that those people end up making the entire team better. And you can really learn a lot from them when you can't find somebody who shared, like, you know, you can't find five of those but people. I think the other thing too, it's sort of a quick side. We're going to, we're going to diverge here really quickly. I want to hear your guys' opinion about this. Nima, maybe, maybe you have an opinion on this, but Aaron, I'm sure you probably do too. Sometimes when you bring folks like that in, I think one of the things is like, if you're the founder or the manager, it's really important to keep them like thinking about, the project that they're working on and not always go back to the, when I was at Instagram, we did this, this, and this. Cause I've also been at companies before as well, where like people will always kind of reference their like what we did in the past. And I think one of the things I've learned being at like three or four high growth brands now is that there's some underlying principles that are universal and then every brand is different. And like, that's another thing to be aware of when you're looking for those early people, are they willing to accept that they know a lot and at the same time may not know anything at all. Do they have that like level of humility built in where they're like, I don't know, let's get in there and find it out, you know? Cause if they have that, that's like a, a really strong marker. Yeah. And if they can synthesize, like, you know, when we, when I was over here, this is what we did. And like, I think that the reason it worked is this, and you know, can you apply that principle in this new situation? Because, you know, if it worked then, then other people are going to know it and it's not going to work the same mm -hmm. way today. Mm -hmm. I've been on the receiving end of that a bunch of times, especially with, you know, we work with some of these like ex Apple or Facebook or Google folks that are VPs at these startups now. And, and they'll say stuff like that. And it usually like makes me roll my eyes because yeah, it was great because you had Facebook right. behind you when you were doing this. It's very different when you're trying to scale a tiny startup and, and it's a different problem. 
or or maybe they they misunderstood the power of the brand, the company that they were with before, where they're like, well, it was so easy for us to get this these cost dynamics out of out of these networks. And well, but the reason is because you had a global brand behind you when you were when you were trying to convert people. And it's just a different, different game. Yeah, I totally understand that. So maybe the underlying principles thing is an interesting one to build a little bit dig in. What are the underlying principles that you think are seen a couple of times? I mean, Seth, you've, you, you've clearly been part of now a few of these big companies, Firefox, mm-hmm. Strava, Twitter. What are the things that you, you carry with you through these experiences? I think people who are willing to um, explore the entirety of the funnel and understand attribution as an incredibly complex problem is like a universal thing that I, that I like having conversations about. Again, it doesn't, it doesn't mean like if someone came in and they're like, well, when we did this, this is what we saw. So therefore it's going to work at your company. That's a no, no. But like, if they're willing to get in and like take my understanding of like the current state of attribution to the next level or push me on something that I might have deep understanding of so that I can then make myself better. So like, but when I got to Strava, I was, I was really just getting into um, being on like deep, deep into like leading like a highly technical growth team. And one of the people that came in um, that we recruited in really has a deep, great understanding of things like attribution and incrementality and things like that in, inside the paid world. Now, admittedly, I, I didn't know much about incrementality. You know, I'd like read about it and and done, you know, read some blog posts or whatever, but like we were doing paid at such a huge scale that we really wanted to see if our ads were incremental and his ability to like not suffer from like the the curse of knowledge and be able Mm -hmm. to explain to me as in like almost like layman's terms to get me up to speed. So then I could start challenging him on what we were doing was great because like, there were moments where like, I was like, I don't know how you would study incrementality. Like, and then we would go back and forth on it. The concepts were understood, but like, then you get into those tactics. So I think like, for me, if you're in the world of growth, like attribution is like just such a um, table stakes. Like if you can't explain how to attribute your users to the various tactics you're putting into place, then you're like, probably not going to be a good fit for a growth team. Right. That's a really good one. I throw another one in there. Um, you know, I haven't been at those companies, but when you interact with the folks who who are there and, you know, Seth, I'd love to hear your view from the inside, but you really get the sense that the people love the product. Like there's almost this magic fit between the person and the product where you have to love the product. You have to really understand it. You've probably spoken, you are a user, you, you interact with them and you really understand what's starting to make the users tick to then ask those questions of like, well, why um, to drive out the tactics? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think I've been lucky to work at companies where I've loved the product and been a user of the product. Now, Mozilla Firefox early on, great. I was one of 450 million people using the only browser out there outside of IE until Chrome came along. <laughs> Woo-hoo, that, yeah, I love that product. So did everybody else in the world. Twitter was kind of the same thing. Like early days, Strava might have been the very the first product where that really was the case. Where I, I have been an avid runner all my life, and I actually I actually ran in uh, cross country and track in college. So running has just been a thing. And, and certainly, when mobile devices came out, and you started to be able to run with your mobile phone and be able to track your lo- geolocation, it all of a sudden like became a thing that all the running community adopted. And when I got into Strava, it was like every single person in that company was like an outdoor athlete. And 
people would be at work all day long in like sweat clothes and they'd show up dripping in sweat and they'd work at their computer all day long. And like, sure, they'd like get a shower. It wasn't a disgusting place, but like, you know what I mean? Like they were like a very active members who really loved the product. And Solo Learn's the same way. Everyone that's on staff at Solo Learn um, really loves learning. They love, they love learning science. They love the, they love diving deep into what are the things that makes the human brain retain information better when you learn, when you're trying to learn a subject and they love code. It's a bunch of developers. So um, it's fun to work at those companies and you can, you can even interview on that as you're kind of suggesting Aaron, you know, you can try to find people who are like, yeah, man, I really love teaching people stuff or I'm a teacher or whatever it may be. It's just like the equivalent of almost like founder market fit, but almost like mm-hmm. employee or marketer market fit. Yeah. Where what you're working on, you're just very into. We we talk about this a lot. I mean, we have the same same thing. Like I think agencies, you have to be very into cracking growth for people. And it's it's if you're not excited about this like conceptual thing, you're gonna hate it. We found out this like the hard way, I think, through the years. And now we look for this like sort of gear for mastery on on what you're doing. Those people, they just love it. And they are way better than me almost at it. Cause my thing is just company building. I'm much more interested into that. Than, than figuring out if the specific market is going to crack, the people that we work with are like that. So this this definitely resonates. And I think it also makes it so that everyone enjoys their work more, which is a huge part of how culture is built inside companies. And, and by the way, I don't them. think that that eliminates people in like the B2B world from being able to like recruit on the same thing. Like it is possible to find people who are passionate about technology and passionate about what the customer that the underlying B2B technology serves which can be another proxy that they're great. I mean, Aaron, maybe, maybe you experience this yourself. It's just like, if I woke up and said, man, I really love developer tools. I, I can't stop dreaming about developer tools. Like, no, you probably don't. But do you love helping technologists build awesome things? Yeah, I do like that. You know? I definitely know people that love developer tools. I know people who are obsessed with building B2B SaaS companies. So like, I don't know. I think they exist. All, all forms of people exist yeah. and, and yeah. definitely there. But I think that totally exists. Like, you know, for me, I'm constantly in awe of the companies that we get to work with and the people that we get to work with. And, you know, for us, we get to be part of this story and this journey from some of the most amazing companies that we end up working with. And I'm sure Nima is probably the same for you. Like, you know, you get to be a part of the story and a part of the journey. And like, you know, you're helping to build that, that end product that is so powerful through the teams that you work with. Even if you aren't on that team directly, like you're a big contributor to that success which I think is is one of the allures on the B2B SaaS side. Totally. Yeah. And I think like what's what's interesting on B2B is that the problem you're solving is a lot more clear. You're like, okay, I'm helping you get faster answers to from your data, for instance, you know, if, you, if you're building some analytics tool or I'm helping you be more organized if you're building some productivity tool. It's just, it's very clear compared to maybe some consumer apps where you're like, hey, this is a social product. You know, you're sometimes using it, you know, it's it's, at least like the folks that I know are obsessed with B2B is because they see the value immediately. And also like you're immediately charging for the thing quite often. And it feels good because you're building something and immediately people are getting value out of it. You have one-on-one interactions with them where they're telling you, I love what this software looks like or how it functions and makes my life easier at work. I think people enjoy the sort of in- feedback that they get. The type of feedback is a lot more personal. Yeah, I think... I'll- a lot of times, like, you know, it's thought of as B2B and there's this disconnection, for, like this disconnect from the consumer, but it's really like, we think of ourselves as a B2B to C, 
company, Mm -hmm. you know, and that connection from what we do to the end consumer, like can never get lost because like, that is like actually the magic that makes us work. And the fact that we're working with another party on a B2B side, it's still like, it is all for the consumer at the end of the day, which I think ends up making it so powerful. I was only going to say, it was to reemphasize what you said that B2B oftentimes had such a crisp definition of customer, which adds to that excitement because it's, it's right there for you. I want to touch on the attribution stuff because I think it, it relates to another topic we were discussing in the pre-interview, which is how do you approach infrastructure when you're trying to build a growth team? Do you go out there and buy segment or buy Tapolytics to do your you know, experimentation and feature flagging? Do you build that in-house? You know, I think maybe Aaron, you can start here, I'm sure, because you probably hear all these different reasons why people don't want to buy your software. So uh, <laughs> I'm curious to how, how you guys think about it over there. Yeah, one of the moments that stands out for me was early days. I think it was sort of near to when we came out of Y Combinator and we started selling our product. We got this big pitch in, in a really big brand name company. And we're all sitting around the table and everyone was like super into it. And they're all excited. And and then there was a the, the classic hippo, like your highest paid person's opinion came into the room and said like, hey, no, 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 we don't we should just be building everything in-house. Like we should be doing everything. Like what are we doing bringing this in? And and there was this junior engineer in the room and the junior engineer was like, hey, our line of business is this, like building the best customer experience software and this, like all of these other services that we need to build on top of our software, that's someone else that they should be doing. Like we, we should be building the fastest transactions so that this runs uh, smoothly. And I think once teams get that focus of like, what is your core focus and what should you be really putting your energy in? And then what's been solved by others and they're doing it at such scale that it's better than you could do in-house and it costs less on an ongoing basis. And a lot of the times when you think about like, oh, let's do it in-house versus let's, let's bring some other product in, whatever it is you know, this isn't just for us, it's really easy to look at the upfront cost of it and say like, oh, well, you know, it's this amount per month. And, you know, we've got this engineer sitting right here. Let's, let's get them to do it. But then that system is going to keep running and running and running. And then the person might leave and who's going to maintain it. Who do, who even knows how it got there? And I think a lot of those things, once you've been burned a few times on it, then you, you've, you've sort of developed that memory of let's, let's build the things that we're great at and we want to support forever. And then let's buy the things that we can get off the shelf that uh, support the use case. I, I, I would, I would just, I would confirm everything you just said, Aaron, and, and then to try to put in like a slight counterpoint only to try to have a different side of the conversation. Cause I'm pretty much hundred percent in agreement with you is that <laughs> if you are going to buy a service that you're going to integrate, don't assume that like, then all your problems are taken care of, right? Like, then the integration happens and there is engineering work to be done and maintenance work to be done on the integration. And a lot of these products are amazing. They're unbelievable in the amount of scale that they do globally for the amount of events that they're streaming and tracking, the amount of clients that they have. But every single integration is different and they don't have every answer for every single client. And so there needs to also be at least one technical person to dive in on the implementation side and help debug it as it happens, because like, it's never going to be as smooth as people say. Yeah. And it's never the software that brings the success, right? It's the culture around the software that gets developed internally that breeds the success. So, you know, like if you're, we're talking a lot about attribution, if your culture internally cares about the attribution and is asking the questions and you're trying to make decisions based off of it, 
then you're going to have success in that area. You know, if fundamentally you've got the software there, but you're not using it to help make your business better, you're not asking questions of it, then you're really not setting it up for success. And it's going to run into a problem at some point. That can be a challenge, I think, of the, the build versus buy when, you know, if you're building it internally, you've got this team, they're dedicated to it. You know, they're going to, they want people using it. Whereas if you're external and you're selling software, you really have to rely on that company internally to, yeah, to totally. use it. Totally. You, you, you have to rely on the company to use it and implement it properly and go all in on the implementation. Yeah, I think the the conventional wisdom here is to buy tools, but I think why it's always interesting for, especially you know, I think in in the specific scenario that Aaron you mentioned, it was coming from up top. But the scenario where I've also seen is where engineers or even product people get excited about building it in house instead, because it's going to be a little bit more fine tuned to the specific business model that they're working on, or they just think they're going to have more granularity or control not having the hindsight that maybe all of us here have had of attempting to build it in-house and then becoming, if becomes the worst sort of thing ever a year later. And I think it is, it is a fun and interesting thing because of course, no piece of software. And I think you both alluded to this where of course, no piece of software solves your problems. It, it, basically the culture around caring about the problem is what actually makes it work. And you can put like two or three pieces of software together in a way that works. You know, maybe you connect segment and then Tapolytics and blah, 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 and then pull that data into your own databases. Do you do your own attribution? Who knows? But what I've seen a lot, and it's interesting, interesting, is a big learning for me was actually when I was working with you, Aaron, is just knowing how hard it is to build, build these things when we were dealing with all those like scale problems and trying to figure it out. Uh, and then now I go into these companies, we have, we have tons of clients and they always ask me this question. And this argument is quite often, it comes up. And a lot of times it's surprising to me that it's an engineering thing where they're like, they look at it and they're like, of course I can build this. And it's going to take two sprints and we're going to be good. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to like show them other companies who've done that, have gave me the exact sort of thing and show them, hey, look, they, they attempted to build an attribution modeling system themselves on Looker they're still at it. It's been six months. It's, it's an interesting problem, but I think it, it looks easy from the outside. When you, don't, when you haven't dealt with the sort of minute issues that come up and it's way easier when, when you've dealt with it before and you know, hey, I'm just going to rely on some of these tools to do the basics and then maybe I'll do my own sort of analysis on top. Well, and typically a lot of those, like when you're comparing that decision, you might be doing it off of kind of the base idea of like, oh yeah, we could get that going. And you probably can get, you know, one like very small use case of it up and running, but mm -hmm. to evolve it, to continue growing and to continue like, you know, keeping up with your competitors that might be using whatever the market leading product is, it gets harder and harder and harder because the industry is not staying static in terms of like, what do you need to make these decisions and how do you, how can you grow? How can you put these tactics in market? Oh yeah. Like even an example of experimentation, like there's just so many channels, let's say you built one and it was working on web and then now mobile came along or, you know, TV came along and all these sort of different channels came along and what well, you're going to invest another like three months of engineering time to support that channel now, because you hadn't thought about it before. Yeah. It's, it's definitely something that I think also because people feel like all these big companies are doing it in house, they feel like they should do it as well. Cause if you like go around and you're like, Hey, I want to know what growth engineering is like. Who are, who's really writing about growth engineering? Pinterest a little bit, Airbnb a little bit. You're not at the scale of these companies to have a whole team dedicated to internal tools. 
I think that's actually one thing, at least for me, when I was getting into this was a blocker because I was like, I was, I'm reading all this information in the blogosphere and realizing, oh, maybe I should be totally spinning up my own version of attribution modeling or A-B testing or whatever it is. And that hindsight was, was not there where it was like, oh yeah, the reason they're doing this in-house is because they have a thousand engineers. I get it now. That's the difference. Yeah, that that is um, that is definitely the case. I think when you get to these bigger companies, there's also the scale of these huge companies. So like a, a company the size of like a Google or a Facebook or whatever, like they are never really going to buy, oh, they might, but in general, they're not really going to buy their own services because like they are so big and have so many engineers that like, it's not cost-effective for them to do that as well. So like, it goes back to where we started this conversation, Nima, like where do you hire who at what stage? It's sort of similar. Like when do you buy versus when do you build? Every company is going to get big enough that you're going to have to internalize some of these tools because like, frankly, like their systems, uh, the third-party systems are not built to scale with like the amount that you might be doing one day. The amount of data that requirements that you may have one day just may not scale. The, the way you have to pay on that data to that third party may not scale. So there's all sorts of issues with that, that like, where is that crossover point where like you are, you have enough people, you're big enough, you make enough money, your data requirements are so huge that you're just not going to be able to scale with the service. Maybe the next one we can tackle, and this is something I think has, has always bothered me, especially because I'm in paid growth. So data is very, very prevalent. Is sort of this like phrase became very popular for a while. And as with all, all these sort of simplified phrases that try to explain a, a concept to people, you know, like growth hacking, for instance, which has its own problem, has its own problems. I felt that when I, at least this is the, exactly what happened to me. I actually was one of those folks that read this phrase and I was like, oh, I completely understand what this means now. And started reading about statistical significance and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, well, we don't have significance on this test. So we got to wait six more months before we can make a decision on this. What do you guys think of that phrase? And I think the one I like a lot more recently is data informed. Yeah. How, how do you think about using data, especially in the earlier stages where you don't have you know, Facebook level traffic to be testing out millions of hits per minute? How do you guys think about the process of making decisions where you have basically incomplete data in front of you? Yeah, that is such a good conversation. Organizations really need to be sensitive to making data-informed decisions and not like throw the baby out with the bathwater. You could have a great idea. You could do five to 10 customer interviews um, with like really, really knowledgeable power users. You could look at like all the sort of very subjective, but app store reviews on your app. And you can start to build this body of knowledge of like what you know is the right thing to do and try. And then you could have a data person that could say like, well, we just don't have the data to prove that we should do that yet. So like, let's just, let's just not do that. And like, you can really stifle innovation if you're always, always trying to turn to data to confirm answers. At the same time, like, I think everybody sort of thinks that they could be like Steve Jobs one day who just was like magical and could like, you know, say what was awesome. And that's obviously not the case. So like, it's this really delicate balance between like knowing your product, just knowing from like a pure intuitive sense what the right thing to do is, and then using data to support those things. I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about this because there's all sorts of stuff that people just don't actually understand how to analyze data, even if they're data people. They might be like, oh, that's not StatSig. And I'm like, well, do you even really know what StatSig means? You know, like it's a very complicated thing to talk about sometimes internally. And people get very crippled by like, well, the data doesn't say it, so we shouldn't do it. 
I'm not saying you shouldn't look at data. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying like, don't let it stifle innovation. Yeah, I'll take a different angle at it. Um, I think a lot of times data-driven means start with data and then lead to the question. Whereas I think the, you know, my view is yeah, that that's you, so true. you need to start with the question and then answer it as best as you can and and complete as much of the view as you can using the data, knowing that you're never going to have a complete view and you're going to have to make a decision on incomplete data and use the data to answer the question, not to start the question. So like there's so many, there's so much data, it's becoming easier and easier to analyze it. But without a question, then the data is meaningless. Like what is it inspiring you to think? How are you like going back to the intellectual curiosity? Like, what are you curious about with this data? How are you going to use it to, to answer some question? I think that is the, like the core thing that sometimes can get lost when it's distilled down to just data driven. You know what I remember in the early days of working at Mozilla, and I'm talking about like Firefox 1.5, Firefox 2, Firefox 3, where new features developed in the browser were just really creative engineers that just sort of knew the way that the web worked and they knew they had to go and build these things. One of the features that Firefox launched was private browsing mode, which we all now know as incognito. And we, we know it throughout the web because a lot of people use it for whatever reason. And there was no real data to suggest that this was like something that like would have mass adoption, but there were like this incredibly informed group of technologists that understood why a mode on the browser that would prevent things like cookie tracking would be an advantageous thing for, for certain types of users. And so there's like that interesting combination of like technologists who are really smart and understand their product so well that they can kind of see around a corner and then they can collect data to validate that that feature may or may not have been a good one versus like, like you said, Aaron, just like using data to go in search of a problem rather than like thinking about what are you trying to solve? It, it just reemphasizes your point that it has to be this balance between like, like there was never the group of like computer scientists and engineers that I work with at Mozilla were far and away the most gifted engineers I ever worked with. And they crave data as much as anybody, but sometimes it just wasn't there but they were really gifted at like building a web browser that made the web work. You know what I mean? So like, it was really interesting to see that happen. And it was at a time when there wasn't data collection like there is today, you know? <laughs> so it was really interesting. And there's also the other side of it of like, you may not have had the direct data of how many people are going to want to use incognito mode, but you probably had some of the broader data points of like, well, how many users do we have? You know, what mm -hmm. percentage, even if it's a qualitative basis, what percentage of users do you think might run into this problem or even within the office? Like, you know, what percentage of people there would want some feature like this? And, you know, you can start putting it together and, and roughly getting sizing that can help right. inform that question of like, should we build it? Cause like the question of, should we build it is really like, it should be, should we allocate capital to this product or this decision? I think that's yeah. actually, yeah, I totally. know more about this is I basically uh, have the same belief that I think growth, in the beginning might be all about the tactics and getting stuff out, but eventually becomes your job is capital allocation. How do you put money behind the right thing so then you can continue growing at a certain rate? And I think this thing that stood out for me from both of you is this sort of combination of intuition, which is like what questions you ask of the data or what you feel like is possible in the technology or whatever, and then combining that with data. And the, the way I've been thinking a lot about this is, is essentially... Um, what I'm, what I'm calling sort of cascading conviction, 
which is, hey, you have some idea, you have a question, or you have a product idea, uh, and you got to slowly build conviction that this is a good idea. And what you need to do is then try to find available pieces of data to look at first. Maybe you run a small test to see if, if you're directionally correct. And as you do those things, you're starting to build conviction more and more that this idea is the right idea. This sort of approach works very well for our world uh, or my world, which is paid marketing, because we never, never want to grab all the budget and put it on one idea that we have, right? It's just not going to work or it could completely screw up the cost dynamics of what we're doing for our clients. But there are some ideas that could change everything when it comes to um, the costs of, let's say, running ads on Facebook. And in fact, we've like discovered at least three of those in the past two years that we've been running the business. But the way we've gotten to those, it's like, hey, we have the idea. We understand the systems extremely well now. So we think that if we did this, it's going to make it work. But there's no way we're going to go to our clients and say, yeah. we're going to do that for you and switch it up. So we have to slowly say, there is an experiment we're going to run to build conviction that we should do this larger thing that will get us to the goal that we want to get to. And, and I think that approach has made me feel a lot more comfortable when, when trying to do these things. And it also goes to our clients as well. It, it, probably a little bit easier to do in the paid advertising world because it's almost like been, you can point to all these other examples of where you've done this and you've said like, hey, like I'll show you where it worked before. So why, you know, why wouldn't you want to do this? And then in the product world, I think you can apply the same principles and it has been applied in, in the product world. And I'll give you a very specific example. When I was at Twitter, when I first joined there, I was leading marketing for the Twitter platform team. This is a, this can be a very like opaque role to describe leading marketing for the platform. What does that actually mean? Well, it means like marketing the Twitter API to developers to build awesome stuff on the API. And it happened to be at a time in 2011, if you remember this time frame, when we shut down the API to be able to build competing clients that were building the core user experience that was in direct competition to the Twitter experience. So these are old school days, Twitter. And it was a it was an all-out war that we declared on developers who we had determined were critically important to us. And so what we noticed was that aside from building clients, people were using the API to essentially render tweets on web pages. We could just see it. We could just see that like, hey, people are doing this. So the next step was like, well, why don't we like try to package those API endpoints into something that's way easier to use to be able to like render tweets on pages. And we came up with this like toolkit. And then lo and behold, that became the platform from which embedded tweets were shipped. And we shipped that within a year of having like shut down the API to developers. And everyone at the time, even internally to Twitter was like, oh, embedding tweets, that's not going to be that big. Who wants to embed a tweet into an article? And you know, now we know how big embedded tweets are. But it all came from us observing these little tiny things that were happening. And it's very similar to what you're saying, Nima, like even in the paid marketing world, start with these small things. And if you see the sign of success, build on that. And then another sign is build on that. That's what we did with, we didn't start by saying, we're going we're gonna to ship embedded tweets to the web. We had to see that people wanted this first. And we had to look for things that were going to help us succeed in the face of us shutting down a huge part of the API that like allowed 200 different developers to build competing Twitter clients. And so anyway, that that's that's like one of these questions where there's someone in, in the chat room said, what, what is the role of product analytics in finding product market fits? I think if you use analytics and data to, to do what Aaron said, to help you answer a question that you think you need to answer, but understanding what the question is first 
is how you use analytics to like make product decisions, to make creative decisions in paid marketing, things like that. But like, I, I don't know, I don't, it's rare. I feel that you like anyone walks in and goes, this is what we're going to do. And it's going to be amazing unless you're founding a company. Hopefully you guys have some things to respond to. But even then, like even founding a company, like the best founders are the ones that have some, some product market fit. Like they're uniquely qualified to build the company that they're building because of some, some set of experiences, which turns into data basically, which, which guides them inform- and informs them as to why something should yeah. be the way it is. Yeah. It's an, it's, it's an interesting problem because I had a couple other folks on the podcast the other week. Uh, one of them was a CTO of Webflow. And, you know, I, I think we align a lot more than I did with Brian, who, who runs Webflow, on, on how to make these types of decisions. Because what they had done is basically almost 10 years ago now, they're like, well, this is ridiculous that we don't have a WYSIWYG tool to build websites that actually doesn't suck. And that has still been the product vision. <laughs> you know, it's 10 years. It's a very simple thing that they're trying to achieve, but it just happens to be a very hard technical problem. And it's going to take a long, long time to get it done right. And over the past two years, I'm sure you guys both know, they're blowing up because they finally hit that inflection point where the product was so good, where just no one will use any other tool and and they're becoming one of the market leaders. And that always screws with my head with these things. A conventional wisdom might be that you just kind of ask questions of your customers and you go back and start building things based on that. And you slowly build conviction towards the solution you're trying to build. But I think, Aaron, you, you just said something that made me think is like maybe their backgrounds or their sort of where they were in the world gave them all that information. Where by the time they were building that product, they're like, we know this is going to be a thing. Yeah, I think there's a lot of data that we have that is hard to quantify directly and put down. Right. Our brains are so good at synthesizing data and creating patterns like to to a detriment. Right. Our brains are programmed in a way to create patterns out of randomized data. Right. And sometimes we can take disparate data points and create a pattern out of it. And that becomes an insight, which is really valuable in building something. And sometimes it can actually be a fallacy. Right. Like so sometimes you're creating a pattern out of randomized data where a pattern doesn't exist. And that's where that combination of you know, what is the question you're trying to ask? And then how do you use the data that you have available to you to prove, disprove, or create sort of proxies or correlated or, or causal metrics, if you're lucky enough to do that, although causal gets really hard, but how do you create these metrics to guide you along the way? And avoid confirmation bias. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when you're working on things where they could be, you know, like big bets, and you're not going to know till the end, right? If, let's say you're working on a big product development, you're not going to know till the end, and it takes a long time, and you got to ship it to see if anyone wants to use it. The next step and prove that uh, the growth of the idea and continue that investment. Very much the same as what you're talking about, Nima. Of how do you can build up the investment, build up the case, and use the data and ask the questions of it to prove that. Yeah, and and what's interesting is like I think you can build all the conviction you want. And when you afterwards look at all the data, sometimes the answer is no, which is, I think this confirmation bias uh, thing that Seth, you, you mentioned is very important. Like I've seen this in, in companies that we work with. Some of them, you know, think about growth projects exactly like, you know, we, we talked about earlier, which is everything is almost a capital allocation problem. And so they, they even try to calculate the potential ROI and all this sort of stuff so that they do net present value on every project essentially. Uh, which is like a financial term. Yeah, and it's like an in- interesting thing, especially the, there's a couple of companies, one of them is about the co public that runs on this model that I respect. And before they make these decisions, the documents are massive. 
you know, that there's been like weeks of deliberation thoughts put into it. And sometimes even they've done all this work, they still don't, don't go after the project because after all that information, they still think it's not good enough and they kill it. And I respect those types of moments actually a lot because you have to go against a lot of these like moments in your, in your, in your intuition, you're looking at this, this information and then maybe there's a VP behind it that you, you trusted to scale your company all, all the way until this point and you have to make a call uh, and then making the right one as in the, and the right one might be, we're not going to do it. Even though we've spent four or five weeks trying to build conviction that this is, this is the thing to do it, to do next. And uh, I think it's a very hard thing. And I think the, it's really hard. I mean, to put all your like sweat equity into it, I mean, just incredibly hard to like step back and say, like, after doing all this work, having an idea, having enough belief to convince everybody we should invest in studying that idea, spending all these resources to then study it only to then say, like, no, it's not worth it. I mean, that's a that's a very difficult request to make anybody. Right. But like those who can do that, I think, are adding so much more value than those who then go forward with potentially a bad decision. That can be months, years of work. The other thing too, which is really interesting, and I'd love to hear you guys thought about this, is that um, every decision that is made internal to a company has these like downstream consequences that can like have effects for like quarters upon quarters. And it's really important to like for some of these like the buyer build discussions or even like the hiring discussions. Like you really need to like try to make sure you're making the best decision possible because um you know there can be like cycles of having a bad head of product for example where you're just like continuing to go down roads and then you have to like get rid of that person and then the next person comes in and they rebuild all the processes and then like hopefully that person's correct like there is a lot to be said about trying to like make sure you make these good decisions and doing everything you possibly can to confirm that these decisions are good and not like moving forward with like what you think you have to do because it was just an idea. I've seen that a lot at companies where like decisions have these like amazing follow-on effects that really can change the direction of a company. It's sort of a generic comment, but honestly, like if you've ever gone through that pain, it's like, wow, if we just hadn't done that, <laughs> we would have been okay. Things like that. It's really interesting. And, and also you learn so much the, the indecision and no decision, like that phase of like, well, maybe if we just had a few more data points, like it, it is so powerful to make a decision, even if it's the wrong decision versus just sitting there and waiting and waiting. Yeah, that's and waiting. totally true. I think one of the things that I always notice is that um, when companies start to scale, more and more meetings happen on people's calendars and more and more people get invited to meetings. And really effective managers of companies are able to figure out ways to like push authority to the edges and empower people so that there isn't this groupthink, group decision-making. Because if like, if it gets down to the point where like everybody needs to be in a meeting to be able to make a decision and that meeting can't happen until next Thursday, how many days of productivity are you losing on just being able to make a decision today? I think if organizations that can effectively scale need to be way better about empowering like people at the, at the extremes to be able to make decisions and scale those decisions appropriately. Like they don't need to be like buying software if they're like a mid-level person, allow them to make decisions. So they don't have to like sit around and like get into this process of, okay, did I get the 50 people that I need in this meeting to make a decision? And it always happens. It seems like it always happens as companies get big, more and more meetings show up on the calendar and like no one's willing to make a decision. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, the way I've always thought about this, and and I, I actually believe this is a big thing in growth that is not being discussed as much, which is basically organizational management or design. 
Uh, I think the only people I've talked about are probably in, in Blitzkrieg. They, they talk about it. Um, and Reed Hoffman's course is, is a really good one, but they're not as tactical. They're just kind of talking about the concepts, which is what you mentioned is the way I've thought about it is, is sort of positive freedoms versus negative freedoms. And I don't know if you guys are into philosophy, but <laughs> essentially the idea is that there is a set of freedoms that you get that are sort of bestowed upon you. Uh, and then there's ones that you are, you have to earn. I think basically as a founder, your job is to kind of get a sense of where you are in the cycle of product market fit. And in the early days, you want almost like utilitarian control because you want to make these big changes on the product in order to get the product market fit. You cannot have five engineers coming up with a new idea and then building it because you have a lot more context than they do on what's going on with the customers, right? But there's a point in time where it's you've discovered the core problem and then now you have to empower everyone to sort of sort of solve all the nooks and crannies of this problem. And it is no longer your job to come up with every feature and every big decision. It's actually your team's job. And this part I think is very hard for founders. It's definitely hard for me. And like we had one of those moments today where there was four of us in one call. It's like the four busiest people in our company. And it took two weeks to schedule this call. You know, it just should not happen. You know, I, I remember thinking at the end of this call, I was like, half this team shouldn't have been like, this should have been done with, with two of these folks. And, and, and why do we need to be, be there to make this decision together? Even though it's a big one and we, we should, but it felt like we should just empower each other to just do it and, and trust one another to get there. And it's, it's such a hard thing to do. I think as a founder, I, I think it's hard, but uh, it is the way you scale. I think even remote has made it like even harder on that side because the cost of a meeting has gone down, right? It's not just, you know, people have to get together. You got to be in the office the same day. It's like literally just a slot on your calendar and the person's going to figure out how to make it to that meeting. So like that, that cost of going down makes it so easy to, to avoid that. And And as managers, leaders, whether it be growth or anywhere else, like trying to avoid that, cancel that, figure out ways to, you know, get that meeting that's been waiting there for two weeks and just make it disappear is so important. Yeah. We, we started doing a lot of asynchronous decision-making because of that as well, where we write out documents, basically give the background and then assign the people that are, we would have put into a meeting. And then now we do this thing, well, it's a punishment by meeting. If you like did not comment on it and help me make a decision, then I'm going to punish you by having a meeting about that's, it. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, so I think maybe we can talk about next is, I think we alluded to it a little bit, is finding product market fit. But as you, you probably have all experienced this, product market fit is, is not a switch, uh, at least in, in, in my experience. And I think it's discussed as a switch a lot where, oh yeah, you have product market fit, great. Now it's time to grow. But at least in my experience, there is different stages of this thing. You might have discovered a problem that works but that problem's value for your company's maximum $50 million in revenue. And then now you have to go to the next stage uh, of, of the problem to grow bigger. How do you guys think about it? I think Seth, you're obviously very good at joining these companies that have discovered some, some level of product market fit. Like how do you, how have you thought about it? And I'm sure Aaron, you see a lot of this in, inside your data. So I'd love to see what you guys think about, and especially in the context of growth, because you become in charge of essentially expanding product market fit eventually. How do you guys think about this problem? I think the product market fit, um, I think is probably like your first 10,000 customers. I don't know. I've heard that number used before maybe, and I'm talking about consumer companies, not necessarily on B2B, but 
I've thought it like, it's sort of like, can you, can you, how fast can you scale to 10,000? And then maybe like another like step function above that, to like a hundred thousand where you can start to see that like there is core usage and you can start to look at these like kind of standard metrics. What are the ratios of daily active users that you have that represent the entirety of your monthly active user? And if that's a high percentage, maybe now, you know, the frequency of usage of your product or, or, or if it's just weekly usage, like what's the ratio of people who are using it every week compared to those who use it every month. And you start to look at these things and you're like, okay, cool. We've got something here. And we think we have something that fits. Now it's time to scale. And growth is very much like a lagging indicator in this regard, because like you, you really don't want to pour a bunch of resources into the growth engine, unless you can see some of these core metrics that are indicative of like a very healthy user state model where you're not churning a bunch of people out of your product, you're keeping them, you're retaining them, and you're seeing these healthy retention curves. It almost becomes a math problem at that point where you can start to see based on your users, those healthy retention curves beyond eight weeks, beyond 10 weeks, you know, going even further and seeing those monetization curves. So if you have a, if you have a retention curve that's flattening out as it heads out to like week eight, week 10 and beyond, you know, you probably have some ability to have conviction that you have product market fit. If you're, if your curve is going to zero, you don't have product market fit, right? Like if your retention curve is not retaining anybody, then you're not, you're not a product that's actually doing super well. So I think that's the thing that we, we just spend a ton of time looking at and all the companies I've been at is like, how healthy is our retention? How long-term is our retention? How healthy is our, our oldest cohorts? Are they still paying us back? Are we able to move those, even those oldest cohorts into a healthier state? And if you can start to do all those things with experimentation, now you know you have you have the ability to build a growth process. You have the ability to like do things that can move users into a healthier state inside your user state model. And if you can't, then you need to do different growth tactics. But you can't you can't move users who churn. If you're just churning through the internet then you don't have product market fit. And it's going to be very, very, very difficult to get those users back. I would say like, don't think about growth until you can see some level of like healthy retention among that core use of early users. And that that number needs to be big enough, right? It needs to be 10,000 people, 100,000 people, something like that. I don't know. Did that answer a question? I don't know. Aaron, what do you think? I was going to say, I'll still take a look at it on the other dimension of like a point in time. So product market fit is a... It is, you know, like a single point in time item and you're either going to keep it or you're going to lose it. And there's a sort of combination of product decisions you're going to have to make. And partial part of those decisions are going to be incremental based of like, how do we make the product incrementally better? And then there's going to be those other decisions, which are, you know, like BHAGs of like, you know, I think the market is going here and you're going to have to balance those two as you go along this journey. And, and as you're thinking about your cohorts and, and measuring the impact of your decisions along the way. And I think that that's where using the, the tools like experimentation and others help you make good capital allocation decisions of what you should be building from a incremental approach or from a, you know, like net new product approach, sort of you know, like Twitter platform API for embedded. Like that's, that's a whole other new area that you have to invest in and believe it, but you're going to be watching the metrics and see it grow. So, so it's really something that like, you know, you have to balance, you have to take on the whole and just rely and be comfortable working in that area of like not having perfect data. There's no roadmap for it. What do you guys think is an example of um, a product that at the time we probably all would have said had product market fit and then it failed. I'm not even sure we can answer that on the spot. I'm thinking about this conversation we're having right now. And I'm thinking about an announcement that I think Apple just made where I believe they're going to like 
end of life, their speaker, maybe, maybe that was a recent announcement, their smart speaker, which I think, you know, they had hoped would be a competitor to Alexa. Clearly there's like product market fit for smart speakers. And yet that one didn't go anywhere. And if any company could have taken on Alexa, it could have been Apple. I had both of them at one point and the Apple speaker just sucked. It wasn't good. Like Siri was not as good as Alexa, but the fit is there. There's product market fit for a smart speaker to sit on a kitchen countertop and the execution by Apple. Just, I, I think they're end of lifeing that. I think they, they announced that. This past, I might be wrong. Maybe someone in the comments can confirm that or deny that. I, mean, I completely believe you. I haven't, I haven't read about it, but I completely believe you because I've also used both of yeah. these things, including Google Home. And it's just it, so it's much It's amazing. Worse. And I don't know why Amazon is so much better because you feel like if any two companies should be better, it should be Google and Apple. But Amazon, for some reason, Alexa is just better. And I'm not sure why. Anyway, there's probably like scores and scores of products that we could talk about, which are like, God, that one could have been amazing. What happened there? Well, I think it is a good example which one? there. And maybe you know a bunch about oh yeah Vine. Vine. I basically they they had the beginnings of TikTok a long ass time ago, and they sold it too quickly, I think, and they could have made it big. Yeah. And that may have that one of the ones that uh, is still in my head. I cannot believe that didn't get as big as TikTok. I was just thinking about I was just thinking about Vine the other day because Vine will still pop up. People will still talk about it on social media, like oh remember these great Vine videos, and they'll like surface them and pass them around. I don't know what else to say about Vine except that that was just a colossal screw up. That 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 product should have scaled and been made a major part of Twitter, and it's a real shame that it didn't. Yeah, it's just not going to work. Even and they really had product market fit in many mm -hmm. ways. Uh, yeah. Well, oh, and even like you know, you were going back a few years, but there was a you know, it was a different generation of phone, different generation of data you know, like the usage of the the native app on the phone, like there, there's so many other differences. And in, in like, I'm sure I, I had nothing to do with any of those decisions, obviously, but I'm sure there was a bunch of data even that was brought in, uh, in terms of like that investment capital allocation decision of like, should we keep putting it in or not? And it's interesting looking back at it and saying like, oh, well, this was the early days for it. I think one of the things I remember being reasonably involved here because I was tagged to like lead the marketing for Vine after we brought it inside. So we did a lot of really creative marketing around Vine creators who were doing really cool stuff. And I think there was too much observation that the only people using Vine were these like hyper creative people that were willing to deal with this like six second looping create like quirkiness and all the like crazy little hacks you had to do just to make like a cool six second video so that it was almost like the video itself was more impressive because everybody knew how hard it was to make like really interesting videos beside outside of things that just looped. And I think it was just like more and more conviction was built inside where it was like, this is just a really hard product to use. And I, I think that was definitely a piece of it where people were kind of like, our, our core users don't represent like scale. Our core users represent like people who are willing to put a ton of effort into making videos, but we want something that like everybody uses. And like, I think that, I think it just became like a conclusion that like, is everyone just going to go do regular video again? And should we just be focusing on like live video? And then like they move more toward that sort of periscope decision several years later. But in hindsight, they had TikTok. They had TikTok in 2013. <laughs> another another example I think I want us to touch on before we wrap it up is is Uber, because I think that's a 
It's an interesting problem because if you look at them now, Uber Eats is bigger, which is a totally different business than than they originally set out set out to build. And and I think that is an interesting sort of product market fit discussion because basically their main business is at break even at best, or or their original business is break even at best in the markets that they're in. Maybe they're making a little bit of money on the on the very mature markets where they have a duopoly, but Uber Eats is the one that's really making them making money and, and it's decently profitable in, in quite a lot of the markets that they're in. I, I always wonder, I would love to know how they made that decision. Because I, if you if you remember the first team that did it was actually in Toronto, which is funny, it's where Aaron is right now. Because I, if you if you remember the first team that did it was actually in Toronto, which is funny, it's where Aaron is right now. Uber Eats was out of the Toronto team, which became, you know, as they started launching it everywhere. Who is in charge of this type of stuff? You know, is it product people, is it growth people? I'm sure you, Seth, have, have dealt with this a lot. And Aaron, you, you probably work with all these people that are making these decisions. Is it the founders? And the scale in which Uber Eats was launching, Uber was already hundreds of people, if not thousands of people. So I just wonder how how these types of decisions are being made and who who should care about it. Yeah, that is a good, that's a good discussion point. And being involved in these discussions at places like Twitter, um, or even early days at Strava, we did before I left Strava, there was starting to get to these conversations, but like, I think it's two things. One, there's a product org that's thinking about how to extend the core use case to like drive, um, repeat usage to drive engagement loops, to get people like using more things, because like, sometimes you just run up against your, like the end of your core use case. And then people are kind of like, okay, I've done it all, you know? And like, so then you have to start thinking as a product person, like what's the next thing we could do to extend this use case. I'm not sure if that's how it happened at Uber. Second to that, there's like a finance team and a corporate strategy team that's thinking about like, how are they going to diversify their portfolio to bring in more revenue? And those are equally smart people who they may not be product people, but they are like strategy people. And I'm guessing that might be how that decision came to be. Cause like Twitter did this a lot, you know, they'd be like, wow, music is really big. We need to have a music solution. What should we do? And then they go acquire like a small music startup that they hope can take on Spotify. And it ends up not taking on Spotify. But then they do it with like Periscope where one of the orthogonal decisions that they made inside Twitter, which I thought was brilliant, was the ad platform team just realized that programmatic buying was going to become big. And so they went out and they acquired AdMob. And it had nothing to do with tweets. AdMob has nothing to do with tweets. I mean, it has something to do in the sense that you can serve ads into a timeline, but like getting users to create content that creates like repeat usage and engagement loops has nothing to do with like programmatic buying of like ad inventory. And yet that decision, it was that nexus of like, we're going to monetize our product by like streaming ads inside this great content. And then it was like, oh, wow, this thing over here is like really taking off. And Twitter acquired AdMob before like programmatic buying even got big. And AdMob now represents like a nice, nice little chunk of revenue for, for Twitter. So I think it's like really gifted, like corporate strategy people as well. That's inside these bigger companies that go after orthogonally related companies to acquire. There's also really great decisions that are made kind of upstream of that, that allow them and allow their, the teams there, the safety to try these ideas. So in the case of something like Uber Eats, they had the feature management and experimentation in place to try it in one small area where if it doesn't work out, they can kill it without any downside risk. Like the, So everybody could really feel safe about that decision. They could push the del- like they could probably push authority on them making the decision decision down, try those things. And remember, Uber tried all those different little experiments. I remember like they had a helicopter 
right? And then all of a sudden a helicopter shows up in the app. So like the yep. ability to roll those out at a small level, experiment with them, and then look at the data and see how does that increase engagement and, and you know, continue investing more and more and more into it. Mm-hmm. But like Uber's acquisition of, um, what's the, what's the bicycle company they acquired in San Francisco? The red, the red bikes. I can't remember what they what they're called. It's not Lime, but it's, it was Lime's competitor. Um, there's an example of where John. I think they just observed that like mobility in large cities was like migrating toward like individuals riding bikes around because it was way faster than sitting in traffic and, and way less expensive. And so like, I would say that that's probably an example where they didn't experiment into putting bikes on streets. They just went and bought the company that was leading the market and, and like, you know, yeah. do the math like do the net present value math and then figure out like, Hey, is this accretive to the company for sure? Correct. Yeah, exactly. And that was probably why if COVID hadn't happened. That was probably a really good buy uh, at the time as well. I think jump is, was good. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this with me guys. And thanks everyone for sticking around throughout the whole hour. Plus hope to see you guys more on this podcast and uh, thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you everyone. Cool. Thank you so much. Nina. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening to our show. Get our episodes as soon as they're released. Just tap that follow or subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, if you want to join our live discussions where you can ask us questions as we record, sign up at paramel.com slash hypergrowth podcast. We'll see you on the next episode on the hypergrowth experience.